Hello you, tuning in to Psychomedy. It's Rafaela here from ThreadUp. ThreadUp brings exciting new changes to its services in direct response to what we learned while supporting comedians and creatives through the crisis with their mental health and including those who lost their income. Check it out at threadup.co.uk and get in touch to arrange your therapy that supports creativity. Welcome to Psychomedy. I'm Nathan Cassidy, stand-up comedian and Bachelor of Science in Psychology, a subject I've been studying for 25 years and a quarter of a century of exploring the fascinating way our minds work on and off stage alongside being a stand-up for the last 10 years. As with me here today discussing the psychology of comedy with today's very special guests, the wonderful Alice Fraser and Scott Capuro. Alice and Scott, hello! Hello Nathan, how are you? Thank you for having us. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. So, Scott didn't say hello. Just spoken for Scott there. (laughs) He's, he's, he's walking, oh, there he is, he's walking around the, um, the Bay Area, so hello Scott. Great to have you both on, uh, now for the first time since Trevor and Simon in our 100th episode, we're talking to, I don't know how that flies with people from Australia and America, but Trevor and Simon, very big news, certainly in the UK. We're talking to two comedians, and this time it's, yeah, Scott in San Francisco and Alice in Melbourne, and me in London. How very exciting. The idea for this episode started as getting two comedians who were gigging again after our enforced break in live comedy. And then I really hoped I could get the two of you particularly, so thank you again very much for saying yes. Firstly, two brilliant comedians who I admire very much, but also because I'm interested in the links and connections we have as comedians. I've looked into many things that as a comedian's mind shares on psychomedy, but what you have both shared, and I've shared this too over the last year, is the amount of content you've put out in the last 12 months. It's been phenomenal. Scott, regular live stand-up shows on Instagram. I'm sure no one has done more live stand-up shows on Instagram than you, Scott. And Alice, a daily podcast, the last post in 2020, now monthly as well as involvement in several other podcasts and other things. Um, phenomenal. How, how have you both found the last year from a creativity perspective? Maybe Alice first after that very long introduction to you both. <laughs> well, so the last post, I think, is, the, is the, the thing that was the most interesting to do, which was this daily, daily satirical news podcast set in an alternate dimension. And I started this last year without knowing the pandemic was going to happen. And I spent January and February kicking myself because I was not getting enough live work done and I was going to be behind for the festivals because it is an enormous amount of work, apparently, it turns out, uh, <laughs> to write 15 minutes of, of comedy a day set in an alternate universe. And then it turned out, you know, between one day and the next that I was the luckiest person in the world, that mm. I was, you know, getting paid every day to do my job. Um, when so many of my colleagues were um, suffering. And then at that Mm. time, you know, I was meant to be doing Melbourne, so I started doing these Instagram live shows as well. 
Um, I mean, Scott, I admire you. I couldn't, I could not do stand up on those things. It turned out I can do conversations with people, but I can't do stand up to nobody. It's exactly for me, like having a nightmare about doing stand up <laughs> Zoom, Zoom shows and Instagram shows where you're just talking into a bright light and you can't hear anybody responding. But that process was really good for me as somebody who has um, sort of some imposter syndrome or some sense of, of being daunted by large projects, having a deadline that was, I mean, I can expand further on the work process. It wasn't exactly every day because we pre-recorded some of them, but yeah. having that kind of regular deadline and then going to the end of the year and looking back and going, oh, I've written between 60 and 80 hours of comedy this year. Yeah really has given me such a boost of confidence. It's been really incredible of like, oh, I can do, like give me a deadline and somewhere to stand and I can move the earth. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great. It, it's, it's something I'm doing as well. Um, this year I'm doing, trying to do 10, 15 minutes of new content for, for a new podcast I'm doing, Daily Notes, like comedy and piano. So I want to go into that further with you um, in, a, in a minute. But yeah, Scott, over, over to you. How are you feeling creatively after your year as Ali said you know actually doing stand-up down the barrel to no one or to uh, a few people is um, some pe some comedians have thought that's the scariest thing of all and not many people have done it I don't think oh thanks the first show I did back oh god it's like March 20th 21st I can remember the day I've been doing a bit of IGTV each night as suggested by a local comedian I know I didn't even know what it meant to self-isolate or any of that so I was mm. here in San Francisco doing shows right when it kicked off a year ago. And my husband had just arrived on March 12th, which I think was the last flight from the UK where they were still serving food. So we were here in San Francisco with nothing to do. And a local radio personality comedian said, you should try to self-isolate and go on IGTV. I didn't know what any of that meant. So I had no expectation. I just wanted to create content and not be bored. And at the time, I thought this was going to last a month or two. And yeah. I thought, I'll be back on the road in a few weeks, so let's just do this. Yeah. So every night, we were going to do it every week, and then we thought, why just not every night? We're at home. <laughs> yeah. go anywhere. And my husband works in a comedy club and was able to film me, you know, on a phone, nothing fancy. We, we, we borrowed some sound equipment and bought some lighting equipment. It's all very affordable and just started creating shows in the house. And mm. then it, it meant I had someone to perform in front of my husband. It's quite discerning because he sees more comedy than I do. And... Um, he was able to tell me when to cut, you know, or do it too dark. Um, <laughs> and that was helpful sometimes. And we fought other times, but it created a sort of an order to our day and gave yeah. us something to look forward to each night. And then I did comedy, full-fledged full, full -fledged comedy shows every Saturday. So I had the week to come up with the material, and I would just kind of lift things from each show each night for the Saturday show. Mm. And the first Saturday show we, we did, like I said, on the 21st, people donated to me an impressive amount of money. Mm. And I'm like, that's so sweet of them. I guess people want this and let's keep going. Yeah. And then we, you know, come August, we were still in San Francisco, still doing it. What else are we going to do? <laughs> yeah. And then when we came back to the UK, we had other things. And then we've been back since we stopped it after a year. We stopped it in March after doing it for a couple more months here in California because we weren't going to change it. And I started going back to live performance here. So I'm doing live shows now. Yeah. Uh, the fortunate aspect of performing in, in a warm climate like this because you can perform outdoors and a lot of the venues in california the breweries and wineries restaurants have stages large ones and they're totally prepped for shows so we've been doing that and it's just such a relief and so refreshing to be in front of a live audience not always easy because some of the people coming to see me now a year after the club's closed 
I'm rusty. And as an audience, I think they might be too. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, walked, I walked a few on Saturday. But anyway, I think, <laughs> I think we're all a bit uh, rusty slash touchy. So <laughs> I hope that rusty slash touchiness goes away. This, this, I think this kid was uncomfortable. He was young with his parents. They came into a restaurant. We want to see some comedy. And they weren't really fans of mine necessarily. And I started talking, you know, about, oh, you know, cocksucking and butt-fucking. And he was like 19. <laughs> and, uh, it's that scene in the movie where they're having sex and you're sitting next to your dad and you're like, have to pretend to cover your eyes because you don't want to. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, young people know a lot, though. But anyway, he was also, he had a cast on his leg. And I think he needed to move around a bit. But the unfortunate part of that was, as he hobbled through the restaurant and out on the deck, outside the wooden deck, you could hear every time his cast hit the ground, boom, boom, <laughs> all the way to the car. And then he, he opened the car door and got inside and turned the radio on really loud, sports, so you could hear the slight whiff of American baseball in the background as I'm talking about, you know, jacking off to my uncle. So it was, it was in, in a way that was suitable, but it also made me remember that we're lucky to be doing this. And I, I never thought that work would be ripped away from me. I thought when I retired, it would, be, it would taper. Yeah. Uh, and having it ripped away all at once last year made me realize how lucky we are to be doing this and how, what a great way it is to help people work through the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. I remember talking to you, it was uh, about a year ago, and I listened back on that uh, a few days ago, and we were, I think it was April the 15th, and we were both like, oh, this right? is going yeah. to last another couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so, so back to your online stuff, Scott. I mean, I guess you were doing, what, an hour or two of writing and thinking about it, and then the hour of the show every night was that a no i was each night i was doing about it started as five minutes and then it became 20 25 minutes and i would yeah. just, sometimes i would tell jokes sometimes i would talk about our day yeah sometimes i would tell a story from my past yeah my husband though was like don't talk about the past it's not interesting and for me being here and starting to be in, insulated i think and this can happen a lot i think it became it became a bit of a drug talking about the past right you know i think that whole thing of my parents and my family and all that stuff. I think I was looking for a show. He said, don't look for a show. Just mm. talk about what happened each day. People prefer that. And he was right. Yeah. And um, so, so what, what started as a five minute thing became 20, 25 each night. And then the stand, it was about 40 minutes on the weekends. And also I think it was good because a woman recently at a show told my husband and I that listening to us each night helped her deal with the depression she had over the loss of a very close family member. Right. And that was really interesting because I thought, well, I, you know, everyone needs an outlet, you know, yeah. including the audience. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I wanted to drill down into some of the some of the reasons maybe now that we, I mean, we all, three of us, maybe work so hard during the pandemic. I mean, in contrast to some comedians that didn't do anything at all and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. I think it's illuminating psychologically for the three of us why perhaps we worked so hard. I mean, presumably, Alice, the amount of output I've seen you do, you were working a lot as well, many hours every day. Well, I don't know. I, I work very hard when there's a deadline. Uh, as yeah. I said before, I don't, I, if there's somebody else waiting for it at the end of the line, I, I deliver. And I was, I was writing for the news quiz. I was doing the last post. I was doing the, yeah. the bugle and I was, you know, my own podcast, Tea with Alice. And now that the last post has gone monthly, I'm doing the gargle, which is weekly and so on and so forth. Like for, it, for me, it is last year was about hacking my own brain um, mm. because I've spent a long time kicking myself for 
not being motivated, actually. I, I, a, lot, a lot of my motivation is a fear of laziness and a pathological fear of, of laziness because, uh, unfortunately, Scott, I'm going to talk about the past, boring as it is. My, my mum had MS <laughs> and she was an artist and she was diagnosed when she was 27 and then was unable to do things after that. But she never knew whether that was because she was lazy or because she was sick. And it really ate away at her. And it's something that I think I inherited was this fear. A simultaneous, um, uh, simultaneously, I don't believe in the future. I don't believe in doing something tomorrow or the next day because anything can happen. You can lose anything at any time. Your, your mind, your body, any of that, I don't believe will last. I have no sense of security that it will last. So if you're going to do something, you should do it now. And secondly, that I have to prove this thing that in some way I or that my mother or, you know, whatever it is, some psychological twist in there that I need to prove that I can do it, that I'm not lazy. Um, and I have to reprove that constantly. There's no point at which you can be like, good, not a lazy person. I can lie back and be lazy. <laughs> like, it doesn't work like <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, it's, you talk about some of this in your show Savage, don't you? And uh, I, lo I love the line in that about people who work all their lives in a job they don't want to do are placing a bet that they'll be able to spend that money in their retirement it's a bet they often lose and it's it's something i've explored in the past with my shows because my granddad saved his whole life for his retirement and then got alzheimer's the moment he retired so wasn't able to spend all the money he'd saved so i absolutely identify with that and then scott you mentioned cheering people up you know that's a big drive for us to create so much content during lockdown so maybe, maybe we can look at all the individual elements i mean that are on my mind as to why i work so hard as we've mentioned a few of them already i mean you know death firstly i think is is one of them for you alice potentially it's uh something you mention in your shows it's something you mention in the blurb of your new show in melbourne I think, don't you? You say something like, death is coming, guys. Death is coming. And uh, that's on my mind a lot. It's a big drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, <laughs> no one's going to die. I mean, obviously, this doesn't, this doesn't work if your job is being a doctor. But what I say when I'm stressed <laughs> out about something or anxious is no one's going to die. You know, I'm living in the first world. I have infinite lives in this way. If I fail today, no one dies. What? I get to start again tomorrow. That's the, you know, what an incredible thing. No one's going to die. Yeah. But also everyone's going to die. So we better get on with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's um, that I find very motivating. Yeah. How about you, Scott? How do you feel about actual death? I'm sure you've never suffered comedy death, but actual death. Oh, I have. No, I have. <laughs> no, I have. Um, not that I've seen. Not that I've you seen. Know, I think it's, it's definitely worth garnering as much comedy material out of it as you can. And maybe now, especially because of the pandemic, it's still a, it's a taboo to talk about. Because people who aren't comedians can't see how you can find anything funny about that. It's like a comedy teacher who tells me that he has his students in the first class attempt to write a joke about rape because it's so difficult to do. And even if you write a good one, it's so hard to tell. So he, he sees that as a real thing to overcome. And I always thought that death might be a good way to start too because, well, Alice has experience with it, you know, and it's a very emotional thing to approach and to confront and when, when she talks about stories from her past i understand that and that's usually great fodder for a comic i guess what i meant i wasn't clear earlier i meant nostalgia 
which yeah. is a real aphrodisiac. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh, this, you play a song. Oh, this reminds me of, my, you know what I mean? I was, this is that high school dance I went to. And it's like, oh, come on, get on with it. So, but you know, if you're talking about a specific, <laughs> yeah, about the way your mother's influenced your work and your life, of course, I mean. Well, I certainly think when talking in the pandemic or to the pandemic, it is that tempting thing to talk about the before times, uh, which yeah. as, you, as you say, is, has this nostalgia to it now. And mm. equally, sort of, I, I'm interested in this division between what, in what we do when we are, you know, as you say, helping people with really hard times in their lives sometimes. Sometimes comedy is really good for plunging into and dealing with difficult things, seizing hold of death and making fun of it or, or rape or any of these terrible things. And sometimes it's good for the absolute opposite. Sometimes it's good for, hey, look over here. Here's something completely different from your life that is happening sure. in a realm completely detached and you can come and and laugh at that and and I'm, I think that there's this balance in comedy between attacking or dealing with horrible things in real life and then distracting you from. And I don't think one is better than the other, but I think it's very good for both. Yeah. And it's yeah. all about the way you present it, isn't it? Because, you know, sometimes you can tell a joke and you think, why didn't that joke work tonight when it's worked before? And oftentimes I think, well, I never blame the audience anyway, but I, I oftentimes am aware that it's because of whatever mode or mood I'm in. And sometimes I'm using comedy myself to help myself get over something. <laughs> and, yeah. and I forget that they're out there. I forget that it's not, you know, it's not a lecture. That it's, it's, I forget that it's sometimes that it's a conversation. And I have to remind myself that you have a very intimate relationship with your audience. And that maintaining that intimacy is, I think, what's really important. It's one of the things as well that you say the audiences are out of practice at the moment, that they have to remember their part in the conversation as well, not to blame the audience for not doing that right. But I think, you know, having a conversation with an audience that doesn't react, who treats you like a theatre performance is very disconcerting because it is a conversation. You're going, huh? What about this? Is this real? Is this funny? Is this true? And then they laugh or make a noise even. If they, if, even if they just grunted, then you, you know that they're in the room with you. Uh, I once made out with someone who didn't make any noise, like in, in my early university Whatever. career, and it was they, you know they didn't make any noise at all, and it was the most disconcerting <laughs> feeling in the whole world because all all of the physiological signals were there that this was fine, and I would I would occasionally sort of ex check for explicit consent, uh, but it just it was yeah it was very stressful, and eventually I was like okay I'm, I'm going away. <laughs> Yeah, and that's so sweet to think that people still make out. That's adorable. <laughs> <laughs> I just cut right for the we go right for the car crash in my house. But yeah, <laughs> I think yeah the you know of course you expect the audience to respond, but it's funny. It depends on the culture sometimes because I've performed in countries where the response seemed muted, but afterwards they were really appreciative. And it, oftentimes it's because it's first generation comedy, like Norway or or, or Finland where they don't know what they're supposed to do. Hmm. They stay around yeah. and they watch. And, and some, some of them seem moved, but for them, laughter, especially at a very intimate or touchy subject, it seems, and you've got to train them, don't you? It's like you said about kissing someone. You have to, sometimes you have to train someone how to kiss. If you yeah. kiss someone you really like and they're bad at it, you have to show them how, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's a whole. That's a whole new podcast, Scott. Um, to train the whole, I want to explore. I want to, explore, I want to explore that with you. Reinforcements and electric shocks. <laughs> <Just>. <laughs> yeah. 
steer them in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we've talked about death and uh, we've talked about cheering people up as possible drivers. I want to talk for a second about, you, you mentioned imposter syndrome at the top there, Alice. And Who am I to have imposter oh, syndrome? <laughs> yeah, so surely not now. Surely maybe at the start of your career. Surely not. I want to talk about, yeah, the, the amount of material you've both produced over the last year. And as I say, I can identify with this, having started this process and now three months into trying to produce 10 minutes a day. And what that does to the to the material, I've heard you talk, I think, on Richard Herring's podcast, Alice, about that well is dry. That well surely must be dry. And you keep drilling and you've got to keep drilling because you've got to come up with 10 minutes a day, as you have, Scott, as well. And you've got to come up with something else. There's always there's always more water in the well. But is it a different type of water than you've experienced before? To stretch this metaphor completely, I'm finding that... I'm talking about stuff that I would never have considered talking about and in a different way and the minutiae of detail from my past, as you say, rather than just nostalgia is coming out in the material I'm talking about every day just because you're forced to because it's, a, as you say, Alice, 10 minutes a day, that's 60 hours a year. It's a lot of, a lot of material. How are, how are you finding that? Uh, so this is, so, so the, the well is specifically a challenge that I set myself with the last post, which was to write one fake ad uh, for each episode that was only about half a glass of water. Hmm. Um, that every day I had to find a different way in which to advertise half a glass of water, the most innocuous of all products. And that was just a self-challenge, something to kind of mix it up for me and to, you know, obviously you're writing a science fiction universe, I, I, obviously. I was writing a, an alternate universe, so that meant I could write about anything, and that's really daunting, actually, the prospect of anything. You can write about anything. Uh, so I found, actually, fruitfulness often comes for me through limitation. One example is I never on stage talk about my personal relationships or my sexuality or gender. Like, I don't ever talk about that on stage because when I started stand-up, that's all that other women stand-ups were talking about and I came in going okay that's off the table and it means that I have to then look in unusual places I can't just come on stage and be do that thing that the girls were doing at the time that was a bit hack which was no my boyfriend this or my husband that or my girlfriend this or why am I single and I just I said okay I'm not going to do any of that and I still haven't done that I've been doing this uh, full-time since 2012 and I have never talked about a personal relationship on stage it mm. also then gives me these kind of areas of safety because I talk about a lot of things very personal things and you know you have that feeling sometimes people think that they know you and I know for a fact that people who know me through my stand-up don't know <laughs> don't know me I never talk about my twin brother on stage because he's asked never to be spoken about in my stand-up he finds it shameful and embarrassing um yeah so I think actually that idea of the well running dry isn't, is an illusion. And I, that's what I found, at least, with this pressure to produce and pressure to produce. And, and, and you think you're going to run out of ideas and you just don't. And in fact, mm. the more things you take off the table, the more you say, well, I'm not going to write about this. And I'm not going to write about that. And I've already covered this and I've already covered that. And there's nothing left. And then you find something else. And that is such a, a beautiful feeling, mm. I think. That the, the pressure itself or the, this feeling that you're going to run out is an, is an absolute illusion. Mm, that's great. That's great. How about you, Scott? I mean, we talked a year ago, as I say, and we were talking even then about how your material might change. And you were talking about maybe it's becoming more uplifting and you want to give the audience what they want more than what you want. How has that evolved over the last year? In the live performances, I've been leaving a bit of space on stage, uh, which I don't usually do. 
um, for me to just chat with them. Hmm. And um, sorry, a very <clears throat> interesting looking young man. So far, but but uh, 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 hey. away from me. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, I, I've just been leaving some, a few minutes on stage, about 10 really, for me to just talk with them, not bark orders at them, which I usually do, or talk about myself, but just chat about what's been going on lately. Mm. And I want to see what grows out of that. And, you know, I used to do a show that they discontinued at the comedy store during the pandemic, but it was, it was a live show for, I think, like 25 years. It was called Cutting Edge, mm. where we spoke about the media and the press and headlines each week and wrote jokes about them and took suggestions from the audience based on current events. And uh, I love that show because it forced me, like Alice said, I was, I was under obligation to come up with new material each week. It forced me to write stuff. Mm. But also, if you screwed up, it was okay because the audience expected it. And they liked it because it, it was all supposed to be new. And I think that's what I lack sometimes in my act. I lack giving myself the chance to screw up because when I first, when I first started, I didn't, I didn't mind. And comedy was different than it was a long time ago. There was less of a, a focus on a career choice. The comics I worked with who were in my age group when I started had fallen into it. They were literally, some of them were escaping a witness protection program. I mean, they had names like, like rainbow and they looked like a New York gangster and stuff. It's like, you what? Or some guy remembered saying that he was, Liz Taylor's illegitimate son. And it wasn't part of his act. That's who he thought he was. So, and I'm in San Francisco, so it's a freak show anyway. So there was a lot of people in comedy, especially in the LGBT community where I started, that really had no intention of making this a career. They just wanted to play around. And I, I miss that element of performance that I've restricted myself in being playful. So I'm trying to reintroduce that I watched some old videos throwing stuff away of my act, especially when I used to work in Australia before I was banned. And they... Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry to revealed... bring that back to you with uh, talking to about Alice that. about Melbourne. I'm very sorry, Scott. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's all right. I'm, I'm dealing with the pain right now. But they, um, <laughs> but they, but the, the videos reminded me that I used to just chat with the audience and see how fun that was, f f I, think, I think, for them and for me. Because again, then the act doesn't seem like, like a presentation or a lecture. You are yeah. in the room, which is so important to be in there in that moment with them. So they know that each performance is different. That's why people like stand-up. They're on the edge of their chair, as they should be, because they don't know what's going to come next. And nobody should. And I want to reintroduce that sort of thrill. Do you think that's coming any way from the last year for, for example, caring about people more than a year ago, potentially? Or I think I just missed it. I missed yeah. that part of my act. And, and taking some time off and doing the IGTV thing and having come up with, like you said, new stuff every day, it reminded me that I used to do this all the time, new stuff every day. What, mm. Why am I having any blockage about it? And then I realized that I'd, it didn't need to be punchline, punchline, punchline all the time. In fact, a club owner in London told me recently, a good friend of mine, that I'm relentless. So now my husband reminds me how relentless I am all the time in terms of introducing jokes at every show and punch, 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 punch. You know, th there can be... You know, one of the great things about the cutting edge of the comedy store was it reminded me that comedians are funny people and I need on and off stage. And I need to trust that, mm. that when I'm chatting with an audience that I, I can discern humor and um, I need to allow myself that, that perk yeah. of comedy. You know? I love that, Scott. 
one one of the reasons that I got into stand up in the first place was because I um I was afraid that I didn't know how to fail properly that anything mm. I'd done before I got to university and started doing stand up anything I'd done that I wasn't good at I wouldn't do and I would stick with the things that I was good at and I you know I was a good girl and all of that um and comedy for me was the first space that I felt really I was so bad at it and it became this thing of like I can fail here it doesn't matter that I'm not good at it in fact there's only one way to get good which is to fail constantly and consistently and I got addicted to that process and for me it's the one remedy against my still present uh imposter syndrome is knowing how fucking hard I worked to get funny it's not some innate talent or blessing or you know divine yeah, inspiration that's yeah. fucking failing again and again and again and getting better and better yeah you know do you think comedians have been as I say, contrasting a lot of comedians that have done nothing over the last year, it's that fear of failure has been there and it's been openly talked about, as you said, Alice, in terms of doing what Scott's been doing. Um, people just haven't wanted to do that once because I think the first time anyone tried to do it down the barrel of a phone, they failed or they felt like they were failing because there was no laughter coming back when we were all learning how to do that. And it has held a lot of comedians back from maybe the opportunity to, as I say, there's no right or wrong, but the opportunity to do some of the things we've talked about today, you know? There's a streak of perfectionism in a lot of comedians mm. and knowing that all online shows will be, at least in one respect, a poor second best to the live experience, I think yeah. has held yeah. a lot of people back. Yeah. It doesn't feel yeah. the same for the audience and it doesn't feel the same for you. That said, in a pandemic, having this kind of thing, having these shows that you can turn to, Scott, as you say, people who are really suffering can have access to these, you know, moments of joy. That is an outrageous thing. And just because something's not perfect doesn't mean it shouldn't be worth doing. And that, actually this is a really good lesson for me because I'd given up on doing the Instagram lives um, mainly because uh, the podcasts are easier for me to work on. Um, maybe I'm going to have to do some more of those now. <laughs> but Alice is really, it's true about the perfectionism thing with, I mean, obviously comedians are total control freaks. We're on yeah. stage controlling a room for whatever period of time. I'll tell you when to laugh at me and how. Exactly. Yeah. And um, we're so easily disappointed. It makes us difficult in relationships. Maybe that's why Alice doesn't want to talk about them on stage. That's probably why. <laughs> but, no one will ever also, love you as much. For your whole life yeah. as an audience will love you for an hour <laughs> seriously <laughs> believe me as a gay man i can tell you loving someone for an hour is a lot easier but it is <laughs> it is strange it's very strange because a lot of comedians i know didn't want to do the cutting edge show at the comedy store because they didn't want to fail in front of the comedy store staff and in front mm. of the comedy store owner they wanted to play that club on the weekends and they were afraid if they failed on a tuesday night doing new jokes, they'd never be booked. It was just too, it was too hard on their fragile egos. It always surprised me because I just thought, you're really funny. Most of these people are brilliant. But like Alice said, a lot of people, they don't want to take that. They're not accustomed to taking that chance. You know, it just scares them far too much. So I, was, I, I, I always can kind of tell, it's one of the reasons why I like working with comedians who are, who are new. I love to watch them. I love to go to my husband's club yeah. where he works in central London and watch new people because they're floundering and it's so fun to watch them. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then sometimes they make they, it. Oh, yes. Yes. 
which is true of all live performance. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's But at least you're watching somebody new, you know, they have so little of their, of their ego at stake yet. And some of what they say is brilliant. So, Well, that, that was the joy, wasn't it, of doing these uh, Instagram shows or things every day that things are going to fail. And if you can, yeah. as you said, both of you, if you can enjoy to fail, maybe not enjoy, yeah. but if you can learn to fail and fail gracefully, then um, mm. you certainly grow as a performer. I genuinely I just... think that's one of the big reasons why there aren't as many women as men in stand-up. Genuinely mm. think that is because women are not taught to fail early. That, that mm. you know, traditionally, stereotypically, boys bounce off the walls and they learn very early that you can fail and people will still love you. And yeah. women or girls tend to internalise their acting out and they, they have it on the inside and so they don't learn that other people will still love you if you fail. Is love... Um... I was going to go on to another driver, but maybe two more drivers before we close. Possible drivers, and you can throw any more in at the end that you think have driven your work ethic over the last year. Um, I mean, love is certainly one for me. When I was when I was a kid, I didn't hear. I talked about this on the podcast. I didn't hear "I love you" from any family member. But when family members laughed, then I associated that with being loved. And I think that's one of the reasons i work all the time and want to put stuff out there all the time it's a hard thing to admit because i don't think i'm needy i don't think i'm doing this because oh please love me but i think from a psychological perspective that must be there because i do associate laughter with love very clearly from being a child so is that any is that any driver for you to to work every day and put so much out there for me laughter was care I think the first times I remember causing laughter was when something went wrong with mum publicly, in public, and I had to make it all right for the people around us and for mum, that, mm. that it wasn't humiliating or that there was something fun about it or funny about it. And I remember that very clearly and it's pressure that I felt throughout my life. It's one of the reasons why I got a reputation for being a goody two-shoes at school because I couldn't stand to see the teacher left hanging you know how they ask those those they leave those sentences hanging in order to make you answer the question you know <laughs> yeah. the egyptian kings were would would wear i just be like oh no i can't leave that poor lady in that stressful moment <laughs> i feel this great pressure to make people comfortable and relaxed and i think there's definitely if not uh wanting love at least wanting to reassure other people and be reassured in turn that it is okay. Is this it? Is this okay? And then, you know, particularly when you push things with the subjects that you address on stage, when you're talking about really uncomfortable things or personal things or, or uh, death or suffering or any of these things, is this okay? You know, I think is very much a, a driver. I don't know if that counts as love. It's some sort of um, some sort of mutual care, anyway. Yeah, Scott, how about you? Yeah, you know, when I was a kid, I was. You know, I was adult size at like 12 and I weighed about ten stone, six foot two. And I, you know, fucked up teeth and a, a flat cornea. Um, and I found a way to defend myself verbally with my brother who was very physical. And I started performing for my family. And, you know, my family are, are Irish and Italian Catholics. Sunday dinner yelling at each other over the table. So I had to make my, my voice heard. And I found that being funny was the way to do that. Also, I think funny people are smarter than everyone else. And um, I'm not saying smarter people are happy, but I pretty much am smarter <laughs> than the rest of my people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Alice, I'm, I'm happy. It makes us surer about what we're saying. 
And if you're confident about what you say, it's funny. And then I realized that was my foot in, my family. It'd be funny. Well, let's, let's go there, Scott. As we're nearly out of time. But as you mentioned, being happy. Are you happy after the last year in term, creatively and personally, if you want to talk about that? But creatively, are you happy? Alice? Um, that's a really interesting question. I think I'm, I am more satisfied than I have been for a very long time, in part because of last year really leaning into my own um, idiosyncrasies. You know, this, like, I've spent a lot of time being like, why haven't I written a book? Why haven't I written this thing? Why haven't I done this thing? Because I, I lack this self-motivation. I'll only deliver for other people. Or if there's, a, you know, this is one of the reasons why stand-up is so great is that there's an audience there. So I have to have the show ready. If it's left to my own devices, I'll think about the show for years and I won't actually deliver it. And I spent a lot of time reprimanding myself for that for, for, as a failure of character. And last year just being like, okay, I'm just going to set up a million fucking deadlines with other people on the other <laughs> side of them. Yeah. And it turns out that if there is that deadline with the other person waiting on the other side of it, I will deliver every time. Mm. And to think of that as, a, as a, an asset rather than a failure or certainly, you know, just, 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 just acknowledge that that's reality and that it has this great quality to it that I will deliver if you ask me for it um, has, has been really, um, that has made me happy you know, a, a way that I think is quite profound because it's something I've thought of as a character flaw or as a form of laziness for many years and kicked myself about. So, yeah, happy. That's great. Scott? Um, you know, I'm um, <laughs> about what will happen in the future because I'm not sure how I want my act or my attempt at expressing myself, I don't want, I'm not sure how I want that to, to go now, but it can't be the way I've been doing it. And in fact, when the pandemic kicked off, I was doing some one person shows here. I was on a mini tour in the Bay Area and I'd written a new show about, I, I had this, my grandfather's cousin was a Broadway actor who um, won five Tony during his career and was quite famous. I never met him, but I spoke to him on the phone and he's a real myth in my family and he's resurfaced. Oh, yes. I've heard you reasons. talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I want to, I'm writing a show about him and, and the way he's become someone I've never met has become a bit of a role model because my father has basically been a disappointment my entire life. So I'm, I'm trying to turn that into a comedy show, whether or not that's possible. But that's what I want the show to be. I'm not sure I'm going to return to stand up on the circuit. Mm. I've booked some, but I'm like, oh, and um, it's funny. Alice said something about theater performances recently because it's kind of where I started. And I like a theater audience's reaction to comedy sometimes. I like that they give you a chance to, to break free from the, the chains of punch. Mm. And I'd like, yeah. to see, I'd like to see what that combination feels like. And actually, I've, I've done it and I enjoy it. I'm not sure there's a way to make a living at it. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm happy. I, I know that I'm I'm anxious to get back out there. That sounds like quite a dramatic thought process that's going through your mind for the future. And, and of course, the last year would have done that to all of us. And I think, yeah, particularly if we've been exploring comedy as you guys have been every day and exploring what exactly you want to do. Yeah. Alice, is there anything you want to say in terms of how you see the immediate future? I mean, you're starting your... Melbourne show again. Sorry, Scott. You are still banned, I believe, from Melbourne. Maybe, maybe Alice could could put in a good word for you while she's there. But 
Is there anything in terms of the immediate future, as Scott has alluded to there? Certainly, I resonate with what Scott just said. The the prospect of going back and doing club gigs, proper club gigs, with, you know, where you're doing, you know, 10 minutes to idiots. Um, <laughs> after a year of, of indulging this very, like, niche sense of humour that is you know, my audiences, I guess, or mine, that the, the that there is an audience there for my most ridiculous flights of fantasy. The idea of, of you know, the octopus people of New New Zealand now have, like, there's a T-shirt. Someone made a T-shirt. <laughs> like, there is an audience there for the for the weirder parts of my comedy um, sensibility. And the idea of going back and and kind of dampening that back down and trying to figure out, a channel through which to express complicated ideas that that mainstream Australian audiences won't be upset by. This the other thing I uh, involuntarily relocated from London uh, back to Australia, planning only on coming back for six weeks and then being stuck here, which is a different comedy audience entirely. So the prospect of doing club gigs at an RSL in Blacktown, I, I am cringing from. I'm afraid of, um, mm. which is probably a reason I should do it. But yeah, we'll do the comedy festival first. And then I'll, I'll maybe ease back into it and get over my fear of Australian parochialism. <laughs> okay. Right. Great. Well, I mean, both of you, thank you so much for, for coming on. It's been, it's been so fascinating having two people on with these connections. Scott, anything, anything else to say before we close from the last year? Oh, I think just taking, you know, taking a break from the, uh, the circuit has been good. I never thought I would do it. Mm. I like to work busy but i think backing off from it for a bit to see what it's it's to see its value mm. and to see my place as a valuable piece valuable cog in the wheel of comedy has been really good moving away from it and remembering how lucky you are to be considered a professional comedian and then see what your role in that world is it's, it's been important anything in closing alice that we may have missed that you wanted to say oh i mean one of the nicest things was my, my special Savage went up on Amazon Prime uh, last year during what would have been the Melbourne Comedy Festival, which I was thinking would mean that no one would be interested in it. And even now, a year later, I get emails every day from people who say that it helped them in some way. And that, I think, is, is a driver for me very much, the idea of helping people. Which, which, which I, I'm very wary of making comedy sound worthy because um, <laughs> I, I have this simultaneous urge to justify it and justify its importance and its significance and art in difficult times is not the luxury that governments treat it as, as a, as a pyramid where it's the most luxurious thing. It's the last thing you invest in and the first thing you stop investing in when times get tough. I think that's a ridiculous thing. My grandmother during the Holocaust hiding in a, a basement would do plays with her friends. Like it is the last thing you let go of is the arts and the idea of it connecting with one another and entertaining one another through stories and jokes. And so I think it's, I think it is worthy. And at the same time, I think it's important to pretend that it isn't, that it's just dumb fun and we're just here <laughs> to have fun. And the process of having fun with people and, and is, is this incredible human connection that makes people feel more human themselves and more conscious of other people's humanity. And that's really important to me. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, 
Yeah, here's one more word on Savage for you. I absolutely loved it as well. So there's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's absolutely fabulous. And um, both both of your work over over the last year has been uh, tremendous. So thank you. It's uh, such a huge pleasure to have you both on. And I can't wait to see, well, I can't wait to see you both in, in person, but I can't wait to see what's coming next for both of you. Because I think after the year of work that you've both done it's going to be incredibly interesting as it always is but even more so i think so thank you very much for joining me on psychomedy today thanks for having us really fun so that is our show for today but join us again next month for more psychomedy on apple Podcasts, spotify uk or wherever you get your podcasts if you liked it please give us a five-star review it helps other people to find us and only psychopaths leave three-star reviews I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about a comedy company I know very well, Smirk Experience, for years before COVID. They've put on great gigs that I've done myself many times. Since COVID, they've been doing online gigs I've also done, and they've been great too. They're one of the best in bringing the comedy club experience to your home. They also do this for companies looking to keep staff morale up, to bring teams together as working from home becomes more of the norm. They have loads of TV comics on their books and have been doing shows in places like Spotify, ITV, the Bank of England and lots more. So if you'd like to talk to them about a show for your company, then go to smirkexperience.com to arrange a chat. And if you quote Psychomedy, you can get 10% off the first show. Comedians have obviously been struggling to make ends meet for the last year, and Smirk Experience is helping support these acts. So you'll not only be arranging a great laugh for your team, you'll be supporting live comedy and this podcast too. So that's smirkexperience.com. Psychomedy was written and presented by me, Nathan Casty, BSc in Psychology, and produced and edited by Mike Hansen, BA English for Pub People Productions, theme music by Mike as well. So that's Psychomedy. Please subscribe, rate, and listen back on all the great episodes so far. They're listed in those video clips and more at psychomedy.co.uk. And if you'd like to support the podcast for £5 a month and get loads of bonus uncut video and more, please go to patreon.com slash nathancassidy. Follow us on social media at PodPeopleUK, at PsychomedyPod, at Nathan Cassidy and at Scott Capuro and at Alliterative. Lots of love to you all and see you again next month. Ever wondered what it's like to be a national treasure or whether you can help yourself with self-help? If it's possible to get rich quick without being a dick or how many close family members have to die before you get a dog? I'm Callie Beaton and this is Namaste Motherfuckers, the brand new podcast from Pod People Productions. I'll be getting the dope from Desiree Birch. I was bashing my head against a wall until it was bloody and at some point the wall moved away. Arthur Smith. I was in the Mischief Gang led by Ray. He was a boy who was so tough. His contribution to the nature table was a dead dog. Namaste Motherfuckers is the only podcast where the worlds of comedy, self-help and business collide. I know a thing or two about self-help, having helped myself out of a boardroom career to become a full-time comedian just before a global pandemic. With the help of celebrity guests and experts, I'll be uncovering not your normal life lessons, but some big ones nonetheless. Richard Osman. You can learn more about the human race from one episode of Come Dine With Me than from most high-budget dramas. 
Emily Dean. Imagine if you knew that someone you loved and really cared about, you know, they've probably got 15 years. I genuinely think it would alter how you behave with them a bit. As well as finding out what makes them tick, I'll be finding out what makes them laugh. Right, John Lloyd? What's the best thing about Switzerland? I don't know, but the flag is a big plus. That's Namaste Motherfuckers with me, Callie Beaton. Coming soon to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite shows. Mm-hmm.